Welcome to the City Life Lansing podcast. You are loved, you belong, and you have a unique purpose from God. You can connect with us at citylifelansing.com. You belong here. Here's today's message. We're going to have some fun today, City Life. What's up, y'all? My name is Devin. I'm one of the staff members here, and uh, yeah, just really excited to be with you guys and to share some thoughts today in our Roots with the Fam series, y'all. It's going to be good. Um, Last week, we had Josh Block come in, and he kind of closed out our Roots with the Man Jesus series, right? Had some amazing points, and ultimately becoming love and following Jesus and growing this summer, because our series Roots is about becoming more like Jesus, so Josh closed that out and he killed it. And, and I actually had the privilege to work for Josh at Block Imaging for a few years. And so I just want to give a quick shout out to him because I grew and developed at Block Imaging. And that culture and that leadership is amazing. So just grateful for him to not only love our family and um, love city life here, but also to grow me personally. So I got deep love for that guy. And I don't smell like a cedar shed today, hopefully, for those of you who are here. It's an inside joke, but everyone is included. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the Roots with the Fam series. And the book we grab for the summer is Ephesians. You'll hear teachers and the leaders here coming back again and again to this book because this book is all about unity. It answers the question, what is the church, why does it exist, and what is it called to do in the world? And that's, we're going to lay some groundwork, if you will, no pun intended, of course, but, well, actually, pun intended, it's the Roots series, but we're going to lay some groundwork today about Really, what is the church? What makes it distinct? Why is it different than any other organization on the planet? And the text that we're going to start with, that we're going to, again, come back to again and again, is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. So if you want to pull that up really quick, I'm going to just read it. It says, for this reason, this is Paul praying. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a really dense passage, and and. It's going to take a while to unpack, but we're going to keep coming back there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Sound good? It's okay. You can talk back, 10 a.m. It's all good. Thanks. Thank you, Jess. I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you for every person here. God, I pray Paul's prayer, his heartbeat, that every person in this room would know the love of God that passes knowledge, that it passes circumstance, like Ashton said, that it, it passes difficulties, and it passes confusion but that when things don't make sense, we'd be able to rest and be confident in the fact that we know you. As I pray that we would be full of that today. That a centeredness and a growth would happen in every person here. That they would know the love of God for themselves. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So a quick overview on Ephesians. Here we read the scriptures. And Ephesians is a... Uh, a letter to the church in Ephesus, which was a major metropolitan city. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of different religions, a lot of different groups in this major city in Asia. And Paul wrote this general letter to kind of pastor the church there, to remind them of who they are and what their identity is and what they were called to do in the world. And so some scholars debate whether or not Paul even knew these people. 
Um, but there's two major themes. The first theme is this, that Gentiles and Jews, previously enemies, would come together, united in one family. And then the second half of the book, chapters four through six, show Jesus conquering the powers of sin and death. And what does that look like for you and I to grab hold of that and to conquer that death with him? And so those are kind of the two themes. And the reason we're starting in Ephesians 3 is because it's really the heartbeat of the entire book. It is the tone, it's the reason that Paul writes for chapters one through three, and that's the launching pad for chapters four through six. And when we talk about the church, there's a lot of ideas, especially coming out of a really difficult would be a light way of putting it season, where some people might view the church as just a political organization or the church is a family, or maybe it's a relic of the past, or maybe who knows if it's even relevant to society anymore. Why does the church exist? And there's a lot to unpack, and so I kind of thought about it like moving. Does anybody in here like moving by chance? Okay, no, all right, so no one does. Cool, cool, cool. I'm not one of those people either, but if you are, hey, no shame. But uh, moving, we, we moved a couple times as a family when I was a kid, and you know, you pack all your stuff up, right? You finally clean the house out. You get all your stuff into the new place. You just kind of throw everything in there because you're like, I don't feel like organizing it right now. And then you sit down, you take a seat. You take a breather really quick. And then it dawns on you, you have a lot to unpack. And the, and the question I usually ask is, where do we even begin? And the title of our, the sermon today is, Where Do We Even Begin? Because there is so much to unpack about the church and about who you are and who I am. And something that we would do as a family is I, I like to say, first things first, first principles. What do you unpack? Any ideas? You guys know? What do you unpack? I love all that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. One word. It's not that specific, but thank you, Rachel. The essentials. You unpack the essentials. So we're going to unpack the essentials today of what it means to be a church. And so that text, Ephesians 3, you can pull that back up. Like I mentioned, that is kind of the launching pad for where we're gonna start today. And the question, again, we're coming to is, what makes a church distinct? You guys could be anywhere on a Sunday morning. I could be anywhere on a Sunday morning. You could be anywhere during the week. We don't necessarily have to serve or give or share our time, talent, and treasure. We're all a part of organizations, right? If you go to work, what's the shared value at work? Does anyone know? What do they, what do they give you for working? Money, right? So money's the shared value at work. And then maybe you have other organizations you're a part of, like a club or a social group where you guys have shared values, a shared way of thinking and feeling and stuff you're interested in, right? That's what makes groups. That's what makes societies. But the church is a little bit different because despite the church having similar values and beliefs and worldviews, There's a whole lot of different people in this room, aren't there? There's Jew, there's Gentile, there's black, there's white, there's Asian, there's Mexican, there's, oh my goodness, it never ends. And then beyond just ethnicity, there's our likes and our interests. There's our schedules, there's our family life, there's our stories. There are so many things that make us different, yet somehow we're still united. So how is that possible? If you want to pull up the next verse, it's Ephesians 2. I'm going to read this again. There it is. That's three. Can you pull up Ephesians 2? If if we don't have it, that's, there we go. So I'm gonna read this to you. This is how, this is Paul's kind of big idea. How does unity happen? Because the unity conversation is huge, right? It's massive right now. It's what everyone is talking about. How do we unify in a world that seems so divided? Here's what Paul says. This is chapter two. 
He says, and he, being Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That peace is Jesus dying for us. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The reason that text is so important is because sometimes I think we settle and we shortchange the gospel. Oftentimes the gospel sounds like Jesus was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, and then died the death we should have. But that's not the full story. The full story is that Jesus was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life before God and man, he died to pay for our sins, he was raised for our justification, right standing with God. Then he ascended to the Father where he prays for you and me every single single day and night. He sent his spirit so that we would never be alone. And then he's coming back to restore all things and make them new. That's actually the full story. But if you stop at just Jesus died, you won't get all the benefits of the kingdom. And so I want you to get the benefits of the kingdom today because Paul said that there's only one way that we're going to bridge the gap between ethnicities. That will bridge the gap between political parties. That will bridge the gap between social groups. And it's this, is that Jesus preached peace with his own life that he paid for with his own blood. You see, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles who at this time, the Gentiles were a Roman regime and they had been persecuting the Jews. Now, in our world, we often say the word tolerance or coexist, right? Which is a, it's a decent ideal, but I'll be honest, it stops short of the gospel. It stops short of God's heart because God's heart is not tolerance. God's heart is not coexist. It's not let you be you. It's sacrificial love. If the Jews and the Gentiles had been together in the church but ignored each other, but they're like, ah, we both believe in Jesus, but it's not really, we're not really family, Paul would have, man, he probably would have turned over in his grave. Because Paul is not asking us just to tolerate each other. Just like we don't tolerate the city, Paul's asking us to love the city, and he's asking us to love one another despite our social differences, despite our political differences, despite the differences in style and dress and energy and personality. I got a ton of juice. I'm an extrovert. You might be introverted. My personality might put you off a little bit. That's okay, right? There's space for you and me. And so Paul is calling us both together to say Jesus is the center point. So how do we do this? Practically. Because it would be really hard if you're a Jew and there's a Roman soldier wearing his armor and he walks into church service. And you're thinking, how am I supposed to praise God when my enemy is right across the aisle? It's difficult. And then play that into any scenario in your life of someone who's hurt you or wounded you. I don't even need to list them. Just go on Facebook. It's mad simple. How can we still worship together? Here's what Paul says. We're going to jump back to Ephesians 3 because this is the core and I cut off the first two verses because I want to get to the meat of it. Paul says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you be strengthened, right, with power by his spirit in your inner being on the inside, what you feel. Not just what you think, but what you feel. That you may be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with all the saints was the breadth and length and height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That might sound confusing. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? How's that possible? We're going to break that down a little bit. Because I think when we start to learn what this means, it can change and shape the way that you and I live every single day. Because the truth is there's a gap in all of us. There's a gap in me and there's a gap in you and there's a gap in every person that you know. 
What we think and believe is true, we can come here on a Sunday and experience grace and say that, man, I know that God loves me. I can sing the songs, graves in the gardens. Yes, well, we can sing it. And then on Monday, my self-worth disappears. And I live as if my boss or my spouse or my coworkers or my friends or my family have the final say on who I am. Or when Jesus calls me to love my enemy, but all I see is the opposition, I don't see family. Because the church is family. We live with this gap inside of us. And Paul wants to heal that gap in every single one of us. And it's not books. It's not sermons. I'll be honest, this sermon is not going to change your life. Me talking is not going to do it. A book isn't going to do it either. We have to get from a place of knowing that passes what is in our head to what is in our heart. We have to close the gap from our thought life to our felt life. At City Life, we say we want the city not just to believe that they are loved, belong, and have purpose, and not just that we want them to feel that they are loved, belong, and have purpose. We want them to know. When Paul uses the word know in Scripture, for us, knowing is not defined the same way. For us, belief is really the strongest term that we use. But in the Scriptures, the word for know is yada. It's like Yoda, but with an A instead of an O. Can you say that? Yada. Yada, right? I'm a Star Wars geek if you're not. It's okay. Reference. Um, but the word yada means to know. Now, in the biblical days, when you said you knew something, it didn't mean that you just had an idea about it or a theory. It meant you had experiential knowledge. You had engaged with it personally. And if you hadn't engaged with somebody personally, you didn't know them. Now, I'm a hooper, right? Tall, skinny dude, love to play basketball. And I've read a million facts about Michael Jordan. I've watched enough highlight tapes for three lifetimes, right? But I would trade all of that for one moment to meet Michael Jordan. Because what human beings value more than thoughts is connection. What we value more than ideas is intimacy. And God is the same way. God is infinitely more complex than us. There's, you couldn't study enough ideas about God. You have to know him. And so what Paul is after is knowing, knowing that passes knowledge. If I asked you guys to describe your friends, just think of, think of your closest friends. For me, I, I think of some of the guys in my house, but I'm gonna use the example of my mom right now. And if someone asked me, well, what's your mom like? Well, I could say, well, she's about five, six, really goofy, loves sports, highly competitive, right? That would be describing her personality. But oftentimes we treat God like an idea and we would just describe their physical appearance. Oh, well, I mean, she works in Ann Arbor and works with the VA and, you know, she's got brown hair and brown eyes and um, likes the color teal. But what we're after is not information. What you're after is knowing. What you're after is knowing. How would you know that somebody loves you? You don't list their duties. When you're married, you don't read your wedding vows. You talk about all the ways they've showed up for you in the moment. When you're immature, when you're lost, when you're broken or don't know what to do. Knowing is about experiencing personally. And we only know things when we engage with them. Because the thing about God is there's a way to believe in God but not know God, which is really sad. There's a way to have thoughts about him and to read books and to be in church your whole life but never know him. Because to know God is to change. 
is to change. When you encounter something and you trust it, it changes your behavior. I'm a foodie. I love food. Food all day. Ask all my friends. They're like, dude, you eat out too much. You spend too much of your money on that. You're right. I'm growing in it. The Lord's, it's working on me. Um, but for me, one of the ways that people love me is, hey, tell me about a new restaurant and some crazy food that you've had there, right? Now, that's an idea in my head. And then I start thinking about it. I'm like, ooh, that pizza sounds amazing. Last night it was LBC. Gosh, I'm still thinking about that uh, the sausage and pepperoni. It was great. But it starts as an idea. Say you recommend a restaurant, right? And then moving on past that, the only way I'll go to that restaurant is if I trust your opinion. If, hey, you've shown me before, hey, man, I, you know what I'm saying? I know what's good to eat. You steered me in the right place before. You see, trust is only built through experience. It's only built through engagement and encounter. And what we're after today, I think Paul is after today, is the knowing that he's talking about, the yada that he wants for each and every one of us that will transform a city and transform a society is only one where you and I encounter love. Because to encounter the love of God is to change. When you actually believe that your most difficult areas and the things that you're most ashamed of are still loved by God, it changes you. And there's a story of this in the life of Peter. Peter's pretty famous for a lot of reasons. He walked on water, he did a lot of things, but the story of Peter is really simple and I'm just gonna paraphrase it for you. Peter was on the journey from belief to knowing because Peter was a Jew. And Peter would have had a lot of thoughts about God. He grew up studying the Torah and the scriptures and being around synagogue his entire life. But Peter then encountered Jesus. And the first time he meets Jesus, Jesus just gives him a new name. He says, hey man, I'm gonna call you Peter. His name was Simon, which is for the record a little weird to just nickname somebody as soon as you meet them. But he doesn't invite Peter to follow him. He doesn't. That's not what he does. Jesus keeps moving on. A little bit later, Peter runs into him again and well, Simon at this point and and this time when he sees Jesus, Jesus invites him to come follow him. He says, come, I'll make you a fisher of men. And Peter drops his nets. It's a real moment. And maybe you've had a real encounter with Jesus where you drop your nets and you say, I'm not gonna live the way I used to. I'm gonna change. And then Peter follows Jesus. But a little bit later in the text, we find that Jesus again comes to a lake or the Sea of Galilee and he gets into Simon's boat. And you would think that Peter, after being called to follow Jesus, would have been front row but Peter was actually fishing again because Peter's a lot like you and me. Our spiritual life goes in fits and starts, backwards and forwards, three steps forward, two steps back, maybe 10 steps back. But Jesus keeps pursuing Peter and Jesus does a miracle where the guys aren't catching any fish and then miraculously Jesus says, throw your water into the deep, I'll take care of your every need. He's speaking Peter's language. Maybe he's speaking yours today. Because then Peter, when he sees this miracle, he falls down. He says, I'm a sinful man, Jesus, I'll follow you. And it continues, and Jesus invites Peter to be part of all kinds of ministries, all kinds of miracles, walking on water, feeding the 5,000. He does all of that. But there comes a moment where Peter is most famous for, a lot of you know it. It's Peter's failure. It's not his accomplishments. Because Peter's at a dinner with Jesus, and he says, Lord, I'll never deny you, even if it costs me my life. Peter thought he knew who Jesus was. He thought he had an idea of who he, he was. But Jesus says, man, before the rooster crows three times, you'll forsake me. And Peter's like, no way. He's like, no way, dude. I've walked on water. There's no way I would give this up. But Jesus, eventually later in that night, is captured and taken. And, and Peter denies Jesus while Jesus is in his moments of greatest need. 
And when he sees that, when that rooster crows and Jesus looks at him, you can imagine the shame that Peter felt because maybe you felt something similar. And Peter leaves and he's not at the cross and Jesus is crucified and Peter goes right back to fishing. And the reason that matters is because you and I, in our moments of shame, in the moments of our weakness, we run back to the things that are comfortable. We run back to the things that feel safe, our identities that we've built when we feel shame or when we failed. What's amazing about Jesus, though, is that after Jesus resurrects, Peter is fishing with some of his guys. And he does the same miracle at the same lake where Peter dropped his nets finally. And Peter is so excited, he jumps out of the boat and swims to meet Jesus, which I don't know, sometimes I'm like, maybe that's a little dramatic, but he does it. And he meets Jesus at the beach, and Jesus is cooking breakfast, which is so human of Jesus. He's cooking. Dude could just snap with the fingers, but he likes to cook it, right? Cooks it. And he asks Peter three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? He actually calls him Simon, because he's poking at Peter's old identity. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter gets a chance first time. He says, yes, I do, Lord. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. And then Jesus asks him a third time to replace his third denial. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's heartbroken because he knows that Jesus isn't causing his shame, but he's revealing it, the shame that was already there. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, okay, feed my lambs. Jesus is restoring Peter. Of all the things Jesus could do after being resurrected, he hangs out with one of his followers and restores him through every single failure that Peter does. And I relate with Peter because I've experienced Peter's cowardice. I've experienced the moments where what I know should be true, where the gap in my own life is obvious and I don't know how to fix it. And Jesus' solution is not to shame Peter or to say, do better. Jesus' solution is to still call Peter beloved, to still say, hey, I have a role for you on the team. You can still come be with me despite the failure, despite your lack of loyalty. It's because Jesus knows that the only thing strong enough to fix our shame is an encounter with perfect love. Because the big idea today, all of that is almost a setup for this. The big idea is that the love you trust is the love you know. The love you trust is the love you know. Let me break that down. You and I, like we talked about, we trust things based on experience. But you can't trust something that you don't know, that you don't have personal engagement with. And you and I have experienced imperfect love all throughout our lives. And this imperfect love, because it's comfortable, like Peter going back to fishing, we run back to it. But that imperfect love will steal from you. Jesus' love that meets you and calls you beloved, even in the midst of your shame, is the only love that can actually heal you. So what it means to be a part of the church is that we actually trust and know the love of God for ourselves. It's not that just we read the scriptures. It's not that we listen to sermons. It's that we've personally and vulnerably given ourselves to Jesus. There's a phrase we say here. It's 
Hold on, maybe y'all know it. Proximity plus frequency, what do we usually say? Equals what? Intimacy. We lied. I'm just kidding. We didn't lie. It's not the full conversation, though. Proximity plus frequency plus vulnerability equals intimacy. The only way that you know if you can trust someone is you trust someone. That means you have to give them the destroy me button. That's what we call it in my friend group. You have to give it to them. That's what marriage is. When you become one, when you know your spouse, you give them everything that they could use to destroy you and trust that they won't use it. One of my favorite definitions of faith is R-I-S-K, risk. Because to trust love means to risk. To risk yourself, to risk your vulnerability, to risk your pain, to risk the things that make you wanna hide. And what Jesus does for Peter and what Jesus is gonna do for every single one of you here today, if you're willing, if you're willing, is Jesus wants to heal your deepest place of shame and look at them with you and still call you beloved. Still call you beloved. Think of your worst mistake. Jesus in that moment, beloved. Beloved. We have to sit with that because if we don't, and me included, if I don't remember that on a daily basis, I act like I'm not beloved. I act like the opinions of my friends and my coworkers and my boss and the people I want to impress are the most important thing about me. But it's not. What Jesus says over you as a member of the family of God is you're beloved. So the definition of the church is really simple. Essentials, first things first, we are the God knowers. We know God for ourselves. So the invitation today is this, to know God and find freedom. There's a, there's a text I wanna read to you really quick. That is Paul in another letter. And this is, uh, this is Philippians 3. He says that, that I may know him, this is Paul talking about Jesus, in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There is no resurrection without death beforehand. And shame is a type of emotional and moral death. It's something we experience when we do and want what is wrong. But Jesus doesn't want to ignore it and sweep it under the rug with Netflix or with me sometimes. It's like I told you, I like to eat out, right? He doesn't want to sweep it under the rug with the things we use to numb ourselves. He wants to give you resurrection life, but that involves entering death with him. It involves looking at the place of your shame and saying, Okay, Jesus, what do, you, what do you think? And the message every time and again, time and again, and I know this from personal experience, is beloved. And I hope the same for you. So there's two crowds here in this room that I want to talk to. The first crowd is somebody who doesn't know God yet. And maybe this is your first time coming to church and, you know, this, you're listening to this Jesus thing and somebody invited you. Awesome. That's great. I'm glad you're here. I want to invite you to know Jesus, to be vulnerable with him. But if you've been a believer, I've been a believer. I like to say I was born on the altar, um, been in church my whole life. Shout out to my family for making that happen. Um, the invitation is that there is more to discover. There is more to discover. Because sometimes it may feel as if God is true but not real. Bills are real. Ain't they? Gas, bro, I filled my car up today. That was real. My goodness. <sighs> 
I was heated. I was low, I was heated, guys. Um, <laughs> bills may feel real. Pain is real. But Jesus oftentimes only feels true. Sometimes he feels just like an idea in a book. But I would just offer you today, have you approached him with your vulnerability? Because Peter could have stayed on the boat. And he would never have known the healing that Jesus had to offer. Ever. And the worship team, I'm going to invite you guys up really quick. You guys can come back up. He never would have known it. And I think some of us, and me, I'm included in this, I'd, I would rather settle for ideas than intimacy because intimacy often involves pain. So today, what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna just pray for you. That you would know Jesus in the places of your weakness, that you would actually become family. And you didn't get to experience what it means to be family today. And maybe you never had a family that looked at you in the moments where you were embarrassed and still loved you, but this one will. City life will. We're not perfect, and it ain't easy, but we will, because we know the love of Christ for ourselves. That's past knowledge. So I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna invite Jess up, because Jess has a spoken word for you guys that I think is really powerful, and uh, will speak to you. So I'm gonna pray really quick, and then bring her out. Sound good? Cool. Jesus, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for them just first giving their time. They heard your call. Maybe you gave them a new name and they've encountered you for the first time. God, I pray that that encounter would deepen into a relationship. That that first experience would become a life lived in your presence. They could be with you and know you in the moments of joy and in the moments of doubt, in the moments of frustration and in the moments of triumph, God. I don't know who here is in those moments, but I pray they would experience them with you. And they would run to you. They would jump out of the boat like Peter. But they would come running. Because they know they've tasted and seen that you're good. God, we want to be a people that are a signpost to the world of love. So I ask, Father, that you would do something powerful in us today. And that people would see and believe and then know you're good, personally. Thank you, Lord. Praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The amount of words I could use to describe this exact feeling are endless. All of them would validate and attempt to do it justice, but none would be good enough. There aren't words to describe you and us because our words are just letters combined to make sense of human things. You are outside of our comprehension. You are God. You are higher than any word that has ever been uttered. The beauty you possess is outside of any scope or description ever muttered, and yet I sit here with my mind cluttered words that could only scratch the surface. But words are all we have to make sense of you, to share you. So let our words serve you today and tomorrow and before and after. Let us spend our lives attempting to describe this love. 
We don't get to just know it and have it somewhere in our minds. No, you desire more than that. We get to sit back and feel and encounter your love at our own pace. No specific recipe or routine or assignment needed to gain access to this race. There is freedom in this love. There is space to be and to grow and to transform. There is innocence and potential. This love is passionate and warm. This love is a state of being fully known yet still having a constant desire to know more. This love is quick to forgive before we have ever even considered it. This love is childlike and playful and intimate. This love will call you out when you put yourself at risk. This love will always protect and be by your side in the midst. This love will never fail. This love will become contagious and spread like wildfire so much so that the one who is lucky enough to experience it has no choice other than to give it to someone else. And the result of this love more imperfect people sharing more imperfect stories in hopes of a perfect encounter that is and can only be made by you. To God be the glory.
nothing better than this love. Nothing you can experience or ask for. City Life, I got to be with you today. We got a block party later if you want to go. 2.30 at Ferris Park. We're going to be here next week, 10 a.m. and 11.30. All races, all faces, all ages. We're going to keep loving the city one life at a time until Jesus returns and makes all things new. Have the best day of your lives, y'all. See you soon.